I'd invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 2. We're going to begin tonight in verse 19 here in just a few moments. Uh, rather than reading the entire passage of Scripture in context, we're going to look at it uh, segment by segment as I move along. And uh, I want to do what I've done in recent weeks. We have new people gathering with us either here in person or online. And I just want to give some context and background of where we've come from in our study in Ruth. And it'll help you get up to speed on where we are in this particular passage. You'll remember that there was a man named Elimelech, uh, whose name means God is my king. And his wife was Naomi, whose name means pleasant one. They lived in Bethlehem, the place that it was referred to literally as the house of bread, with their sons, Malan and Killian. They were uh, God-fearing people, and there was a famine in the land of Israel, and they decided that they were going to leave. This was an important decision because they were leaving the land that they knew that was their heritage, and they were going to a place called Moab where they could work and presumably where they could find food. While in Moab, each of the sons married Moabite women named Ruth and Orpah. Uh, They fell into hard times and trials and difficulties came to them in Moab, which was a pagan land. Uh, Suffering, sorrow, and death uh, occurred. Some time passed and all of a sudden Elimelech was gone along with Malan and Killian. Naomi was left a widow as were her daughters-in-law. So she makes the decision that she's going to leave Moab and she's going to go back to Bethlehem. And she tried to encourage Ruth and Orpah to stay in Moab rather than go back with her. She essentially tried to talk them out of it, uh, but Ruth decided that she was going to go with her and Orpah decided that she was going to stay in Moab while Ruth and her mother-in-law went back to Bethlehem. So far, we've considered what happens in the darkness of trouble and how trouble comes unexpectedly. And when we're not anticipating it, it calls for us to make choices and how darkness precedes the light of grace and there's hope in the midst of that. We also looked at the marks of loyalty and how a return requires starting where you are, counting the cost, and going back to the place of blessing. I've shared a quote from Alistair Begg. He said, when God is at work, even hopelessness may be the doorway to fresh starts and to new opportunities. We then focused on the providence of God in life and how God makes preparations according to his providence. He arranges plans for our lives, even when we can't see them. And then he oversees the outcome of those plans in his providence for our lives. And then last, we highlighted how we can find refuge in God. You remember when Naomi and Ruth arrived back in Bethlehem, they were broke and they were alone. It would have been a desperate situation in the ancient world. And the fact that one of them was from a pagan land means that their plight was even worse. But yet God began to meet their need for food and for family through a man named Boaz. Boaz was a prosperous man of noble character who was also a successful farmer in the fields near Bethlehem. And it's a beautiful thing to see how God finds those who are in need. He favors those who are weak and he feeds those who are hungry. And the way that Boaz helps Ruth 
provides an example for us, ultimately, of how the Lord Jesus Christ provides for us. And in Jesus, we find grace. In Jesus, orphans become children of God. And in Jesus, we find a family. So Ruth experienced great kindness from Boaz. At this point in the story, she doesn't know the connection with Naomi, and Naomi doesn't know about the kindness to Ruth. Uh, Ruth is gleaning in the fields of Boaz, who went above and beyond to honor and to protect her. And we're going to find here from the closing verses uh, two widows who are responding to the grace of God and how God is intervening on their behalf to care for them. And God cares for his people. Let's begin reading here in verse 19. Let's read the first part of it. Uh, Her mother-in-law said to her, uh, where did you gather barley today? And where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Naomi did not know who owned the field where Ruth had gone to gather the grain. She asked the name of the man who owned it. And when she asked the name of the man who owned it, she offered a prayer of blessing for that man. And in a way, she's already moving away from this bitterness that she has experienced in her situation and the reality even of how she spoke about it and what God had done in her life. And she's beginning to recognize the blessing that is coming their way. And one thing that we want to note here is that when your heart is turned toward God, then you'll be able to see his hand at work in your life. When your heart is turned away from God and there's bitterness in it, and there's an unsettledness about what's happening around you, it's hard to see the hand of God at work in your life. And Boaz was more blessed than even he knew because Naomi and Ruth were praying for him. Pick back up in verse 19, Ruth told her mother-in-law, whom she had worked with, and she said, the name of the man I work with today is Boaz. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, verse 20, May the Lord bless him because he's not abandoned kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, The man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Now let's focus in just for a moment on this word kindness. Kindness comes from a Hebrew word that is used more than 200 times in the Old Testament. When you find a word appearing that many times, certainly it has some significance and application for us. The word is broad and a little bit hard to define because it includes love and kindness, loyalty and grace and mercy. The principal word that's used to express kindness in the Old Testament carries with it the connotation of a loyal love which manifests itself not in emotions primarily, but in actions. So it's not just a love that is felt. It is a love that is put into action. And originally, this loving kindness was considered to be a part of the covenant relationship that God had with his people. It was to be a love and a kindness that was to be reciprocal, and it was expected to be tied to loyalty. So think about it this way. We're able to be loyalty, loyal to God, and we're able to show 
a love that is a lasting love to God because he has first loved us and because he has shown a loyal love to us. Now we see this play out in the Old Testament in a number of examples. You remember Rahab expected kindness in return for her kindness um, to the spies. Uh, Joseph expected kindness uh, from the cupbearer in return for the interpretation of a dream. In a sense, kindness was distinct from mercy or compassion, which was more of an emotion, and it was distinct from grace, which was not as closely associated with covenant keeping. But over time, the concepts of kindness, mercy, and grace sort of come together, and they certainly come together in the illustrations that we find in the Scripture. Kindness also was shown in social relationships, uh, in the bonds that people had between host and guest, ruler and subject, or in the relationships that people had uh, simply as friends. Primarily, kindness was characterizing that covenant relationship, however. And when we get to the Psalms, the Psalms developed that theme with an expression of thanksgiving for the divine kindness of God and loyalty and endurance because of God's presence in the psalmist's life. So maybe Naomi was thinking at this point of all of the fields possible that Ruth could have walked into, she walked into the field of Boaz. Now remember, Naomi had suffered much and she had lost much. She spent hard years in Moab. She had endured a long journey back home with Ruth by her side. And she realizes that the Lord has not forgotten them. And here's a thought I want to share with you tonight that I want you to think about even in the next few days. And that is, it is impossible to exhaust the kindness of God. It is impossible to exhaust the kindness of of God. Our kindness sometimes runs short. Maybe we're tired or, or maybe the stress of particular life situations uh, bears down on us and we feel the pressure and we're not particularly feeling kind, especially in exercising the actions of kindness. But it is impossible to exhaust the kindness of God. Now we find this interesting situation here because the Old Testament law permitted a close relative to step in and redeem a family member under certain circumstances. You can read about it further back in, in Leviticus, and there is an outlining specifically of what a kinsman redeemer was to do and who they were to be and what situations qualified for this. But essentially, the kinsman redeemer was a male relative who, according to various laws found in the Pentateuch, had the privilege or the responsibility to act for a relative who was in trouble, who was in danger, or who simply was in need. The Redeemer in that regard could buy back a family member or buy back land that belonged to a family member, and there was an allowance if needed for the Redeemer to avenge the blood of the family member if in fact something had gone wrong. But here's a nuance that's very important in the book of Ruth, and this is important in the study of Ruth. The law of the kinsman redeemer was never intended to apply 
to foreigners. Now, I want you to think about that just for a moment. It was a family law that was intended to guide Jewish families. So a Jewish man could marry a Jewish woman to help his deceased Jewish brother, for example. But the idea of a Jew and a Moabite person drawing together was not in view. And it is remarkable in that sense that God was putting this together to deliver Ruth and to provide for them. But what's even more remarkable is what it points to as we've looked at already in Christ as the kinsman redeemer. Because what God has done is he sent uh, his only son through his chosen nation. And he was the Messiah of the Jews, but he was always intended to be the Messiah of the Gentiles. And though we were not a part of that original covenant family, we are grafted in in Christ and we are blessed to be a part of the family of God. So we'll see that further as we get a little bit further into the story. So what I want you to see here is that God cares for his people with peace. God cares for his people with peace. Now let's pick back up in verse 21. Ruth the Moabitess said, he also told me, stay with my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. Now once again, I've already noted this, but let's note it again. She's called Ruth the Moabitess. Now, we already know that fact. So why is it mentioned again? Probably not a day passed in that village when Ruth was not reminded in one way or the other that she was not a Jew. She was outside of the covenant and was a stranger to the promises of God. She did not belong, and some probably thought that she just needed to make a return trip to Moab. But here, Boaz is in the story, having revealed himself to be a man of character, a man of compassion, and a person of means. And if Boaz determined to take care of Ruth, then in fact, nobody in that village would say anything about it, or at least if they were bold enough to say anything about it, they would have been very quiet in doing so. They would not have challenged him. And God always makes a way where there seems to be no way. It's interesting, Ian Campbell pointed out that the same law that forbade her to join the people of God also opened a door of grace for her. The first law said that she could not come in, but in the second law, she could not be kept out because they were told to provide for those who were the strangers and the fatherless and the widow. And he points to Deuteronomy 23 and 24 in making that case. Ruth certainly was all of those things. She was a stranger. She was fatherless in this circumstance, and here she's a widow. So she qualifies on all three accounts, but she's experiencing the peace of God in an unlikely circumstance because he's not forgotten her. And when we think about the peace of God, the peace of God is in part a, a really the blessing of submitting to God and, and trusting in him. It requires humility for us, but it also requires some courage. We're told to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and to lean not on our own understanding. And 
we are all sinners in the sight of God. And we have no way to get back to him or to be cared for by him unless we trust in him. And that's what's taking place in these moments is God is providing peace. He's doing it through human circumstances, but he has a purpose in it all. And that takes me to the next point that God cares for his people, not only with peace, but also with protection. Let's pick back up in verse 22. So Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, my daughter, it is good for you to work with the female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. Now in another field, young men might have troubled Ruth. They might have sought to take advantage of a widow who had come from another country. But by staying in Boaz's field, she found protection. There are many examples and many promises also of God's protection for us in the Bible. Uh, You'll remember that God promised protection to the Israelites against the nations that would come against them when they first went in uh, to the promised land. Exodus 23 and verse 27 said, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. God protected those whose actions were in accordance with his plans. The Psalms are filled with praise for God as he protected his chosen one against the enemies. Uh, No amount of power or wrath that the enemy brought against David uh, was, uh, was something that would overcome him or that could match the protective hand of God. Uh, you remember God's protection in Job's life. Uh, even though Job suffered through many trials as a result of the attacks of Satan, it was God who eventually drew that line in the sand and Satan could not cross over that line. He was limited in what he would do because God in his purpose for Job's life was going to protect him, even when Job could not see it. Now, here's the point. We don't always clearly see how God is protecting us. And furthermore, I think there are times when God is going ahead of us or God is serving as our rear guard, and we don't even know it. We we might totally miss it, but yet God was watching over us because he had a reason either to spare us or to bless us or to redirect us or to do something specific in our lives. And even though if we can't clearly see it, that doesn't mean that the protective hand of God is not on us. And throughout all of life, I'd say that that would be the case. Psalm 112 and verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. I'm thankful for the protective hand of God. And sometimes I think we also think about God's protection in a very limited way. So that things don't go well in this life and something happens and either we get sick or some other tragedy befalls us or we encounter some other circumstances beyond what we would have ever thought of. We think somehow that God's not protecting us. His hand is not on us. His hand is on us eternally, forevermore. And no matter what happens in this life, no matter what befalls us in this particular moment, we know that the love of God is something from which we can never be separated from. One of my favorite passages in all scriptures, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is that outline of all the different things that could potentially, theoretically, hypothetically separate us from the love of God. And the conclusion of it all is that there's nothing that can separate us 
from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then God cares for his people with, with provision. Now, this is an important point. Pick back up in verse 23. It says, Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, the barley harvest began in April, and the wheat harvest ended in June. So the particular circumstance is that Ruth would have been working in the fields with along, along with the other women uh, for at least seven weeks or so. And she stayed close during those long days working in the field. Remember, we've already seen her to be a loyal person. She's already uh, evidenced the fact that she has common sense. We know now for certain she's not afraid to work. That's a pretty good combination to be loyal, to have some common sense and not be afraid of work. And God provided both a home and food for a young widow from a foreign land. Now, if God can do that, he can do pretty much anything. Ruth was safe and secure in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Remember, in the fields of Moab, they reaped sadness and loss. Ruth buried her husband there. But in the fields of Boaz, there was abundant provision. Now, there are at least 169 verses in the Bible that refer to the ways that God provides for us. That's a lot of references to God's provision for his people. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19 puts it simply, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Like any good father, God would never give us what he knows would harm us. God does not want us to see him, however, as only the source of material possessions. After all, that's where the health and wealth gospel has gotten off track. The health and wealth gospel says that if you just pray enough and you'll have enough faith, then you're going to have the material things that you want. That's not what the scripture is teaching. God differentiates between our needs and our wants because he wants to know where our treasure is because where our treasure is, there our heart will be and where our heart will be is where it will be focused on the treasure. So we got to be careful when we're thinking about God's provision that we're not thinking about using him just to get what we want, but rather trusting him as our father and seeing that every single thing that he does for us and every single thing that he gives us is because he loves us and he wants to care for us. He wants us to know that this world is not our home. He wants us to shift our focus to eternal life while we're still living this life. And if we get so wrapped up in the material aspect of things, rather than seeing them as something that God has given us to care for us and to bless us, and we lose sight of eternity, we've lost sight of the whole point of our relationship with God. And I do believe God is concerned with every aspect of our beings, uh, spirit, soul, body, I believe that we can trust God in his goodness and his guidance. I believe that we can depend on God and his shepherding for us. And God provides a way for us often when there is no way. But we need to look past the provision to see the provider. You remember in the Lord's Prayer, 
Uh, Jesus teaches his disciples to ask for provision, and our dependence on God is affirmed every day when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. There are many passages in the scripture that relate to our physical needs, our daily needs. So it's not as though God does not care about these things. But the point is, the greatest provision that God has made for any of us is to have a relationship with him. And through that relationship with him, we can find those ongoing needs. And we can recognize that with God, there is enough and there is more than enough. Kind of like when Jesus performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. After everybody had eaten what they wanted, the disciples gathered back up the 12 baskets filled with the leftovers. There is a sufficient and abundant supply from God. But what's even more important to note here is that the grace of God is an endless supply. Did you know that there is enough grace to cover your yesterdays? There's enough grace to sustain your today. There's enough grace to see you through to tomorrow. God is able and God is sufficient. And let me give this thought and I'm going to come toward a close. God raised up a redeemer and did what only he could do. Now we're getting down to the heart of this story and we're approaching it quickly Um, And we've seen already the type role that Boaz plays in redemptive history. After all, he descended from the tribe of Judah. He came out of Bethlehem to bless uh, his people. Uh, There's a, a promise given here. And we see in Boaz a type of Christ. And that's what it's all leading up to. Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Christ who came out of Bethlehem to bless his people. Christ referred to as the son of David, the redeemer of God's elect. Christ the one who sends laborers into his fields to work. Christ the one who always teaches uh, people the truth and guides them in his kindness. Christ the one who welcomes outsiders and foreigners and people who have no way. Christ the one who has paid our debt on our behalf. Christ the one who has given us the right to be his bride. All of these things point to this theme of redemption. That Boaz had to honor and keep the demands of the Mosaic law. Christ is the only one who could perfectly keep the law of God. And in order for Boaz to be Ruth's redeemer... He had to follow the demands of the law. He had to pay the price to redeem her. And it's a beautiful picture ultimately of what Christ has done on our behalf. And this is really the heart of the story. God's the hero of the story. God, God is the central focus of the story. And what God has done is what we rejoice in as we learn from a very earthy story of what happened in the life of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz in this central idea of the kinsman redeemer. So let's pray and thank God for how he cares for his people because he does it like none other. He's the only one who can care for us as he has. And as we bow our heads together tonight, I wonder if there's some area of your life that you're particularly needing God's care right now. 
You might have thought that he'd forgotten. You can't see clearly how he's working. Maybe you've lost sight of how he's moving in your life. And maybe in this moment, you just need to say, Father, I know you care for me. And I can't clearly see it all right now, but give me a heart that trusts you. Give me faith to believe and uh, help me to surrender my will to you and to know that you care for me as my good father, my eternal father. Let's take a moment just to thank Christ for his finished work as our redeemer, as the one who has welcomed us in and grafted us in, the, the ones who are the outsiders, but now we're insiders in Christ. The ones that were without a family, but now we have a family. The ones that were without hope, but now we have a hope. The ones that were without life, but now we have life. And it's all come from the good hand of God and his kindness toward us. Father, thank you for your blessings. As we continue to unfold this uh, short story, which is so deep with meaning, uh, I pray that we would see you in all of it and that we would give you the honor and the glory that is due you. Uh, because you're worthy. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And I pray that our hearts and our minds would be fixed on your eternal kindness that is beyond measure and is without end in Christ. And it's in his name that we